And then there's just a nothingness. And that felt so discombobulating for somebody who ate goals for breakfast, who always had direction. And then I had a coach tell me, is it nothingness or is it spaciousness? Mm. Mm. And that was a beginning. Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast, where being a high achiever doesn't necessarily equate to being an effective leader. Let's check to see if you're in the right place. If you're rising through the ranks of your organization so fast that your leadership skills need to grow as fast as your responsibilities, you're in the right place. If it seems you need different skills to lead your team or lead from within a group of talented, competitive peers, you're in the right place. If you're looking to become a trusted advisor to the CEO, you are definitely in the right place. So now that we know that you're in the right place, enjoy today's conversation. Before we begin the show, I have something for you. The Rising Leader Handbook will be published in January of 2024, but you don't have to wait. Go to my website, www.markjsilverman.com and click the red button. There you can get an advanced copy of the executive summary of the Rising Leader Handbook. And in the same place, you can get a free copy of Only Tens. I'd love to hear your feedback. Now on with the show. About four years ago, I interviewed my next guest. We had been friends for several years. I watched her transform over several years, and I probably was on the tail end of a lot of work and saw something really cool about the way she went from being an overachieving, ambitious, driven businesswoman to someone who was actually starting to figure it out, who was gone through adrenal fatigue, had gone through just the complete breakdown of her body and her psyche and rebuilt herself to a new type of person. And, uh, this person was Dr. Mandy Leto. The episode was so good and so profound that we decided to replay it on the Rising Leader podcast just a few weeks ago. So if you want to go back and listen to it after you listen to uh, Mandy today, you're going to want to go back and listen and we'll put the link in the in the show notes. The conversation for me was so profound because Still to this day, I talk to people about overwhelm, about them, them just holding it together just enough to give it another day, another week, another year until, as Dr. Uh, Jeff Spencer, who is also a guest on this podcast, spoke about, your body's going to rebel. Or your body can take it for only so long. Your psyche can only take it for so long, and it's going to rebel eventually. And if you don't take steps now, it's, it's going to be too late. So I asked Mandy to come back and have a conversation because what I've seen over the last several years is not only incremental growth from that conversation, but transformation. We were talking before the mic came on about some of those things, and I can't wait to share it with you. Officially, Dr. Mandy Leto runs a, a global leadership development program for senior executives. She is an executive coach for like the last 15 years at places like UBS and Oracle and HSBC and Nestle's and household names. In her previous career, she was the director at a global investment bank. So she knows what she's talking about. She's been featured in Forbes and Fast Company and The Times and Psychology Today. She is the host of the Enough podcast, which is frequently ranked in the top 100 podcasts. And she's also my good friend. Mandy, thanks for being here. I can't wait to play for round two. Thanks for inviting me. We were talking before the mic came on. You and I were talking about specific things in the past episode. And one of the things you said was like, that is, I forgot that that was even a thing for me. You've healed and changed and grown so much that some of those things that you had learned and were working with aren't even a 
part of you now. So that's really cool. Can you help catch us up so people can go back and listen to that episode and get the whole story? But now catch us up to who were you, what happened, and how did you get to being doing this? I was a longtime overachiever, perfectionist, and people pleaser who happened to collide with an investment banking job. So it was the perfect storm (laughs) for being able to scoop myself out for validation of various kinds, financial, uh, verbal, getting on the promotion track. I loved the buzz of it maybe too much sometime. And it it was, a per, as I said, a perfect storm for somebody who was willing to overextend themselves, overgive, overdo. Because first of all, you're in that fish tank where there's a lot of other people doing the same thing. It's not really known for boundaries and as an occupation that's filled with people committed to self-care and what have you. It's it, There's an intensity and an extremeness to it that matched my energy at the time. So it felt like a great fit for me at the time. So if I fast forward the story, I had two small children, a newborn and a four-year-old. Uh, I was My life looked shiny from the outside. This is the, the strap line from my podcast. Life looks shiny on the outside, but secretly on the inside, you're hanging by a thread and almost no one would know. That was me. I was the poster child of that. I was doing so much image maintenance, which I was an expert at. Never let them see you sweat. Dress the part, be the part, push your feelings down, disconnect from your body, do whatever it is that you need to do. Eventually, when you don't heed the calls of the body, it will take your knees out from under you, which is exactly what happened. It kind of shocked me because I thought my head was in charge of the show. I repeatedly went to the doctor. There's nothing wrong with you. Are you depressed? But you thought your head, your drive, your, your, like all that would move you through that. And that was actually hurting you. And that my body was just going to do what it was told. There was not an obvious diagnosis. So I thought I'm just weak. So it really played into that extreme behavior of just push yourself harder, drink more coffee, do more high intensity exercise. And eventually I completely crumbled and I went into this, what I now call the cocoon phase, you know, when the caterpillar turns into the goo and I had to be in the goo for a really long time because I had pushed myself past the point of no return. So I was basically out of commission for the better part of a year, stewing in my own juices, wondering what my point was as a human being, because my old philosophy was I do, therefore I am. And when I couldn't be doing, I wasn't getting the hit of validation. I wasn't getting promoted. I had already left banking at this stage and started my own business, which I started two businesses. And there I was in bed with these two small children, getting nowhere, doing nothing, feeling utterly worthless. And just to catch listeners up, I think now in hindsight, I can look at this in a series of stages that might resonate with anybody else. So I think the first stage before when I was just starting my businesses, when I had left banking, there were lots of red flares coming up from my body. I had this like scabby goatee around my nose and mouth, these weird rashes, digestive upsets, like all sorts of signs, like just feeling like your body is a lead suit. So that was the denial phase. I thought, oh, 
Let's move the deck chairs around the Titanic. Let's drink some green juice and read a novel at the weekend, like as if that's going to do anything. So then the shit hits the fan and you're in the triage phase. Like, okay, now we're going to have to do something structural here. So I was trying to use my perfectionist to hack my healing. And then that's, so that's the triage phase. The next phase is what I call the reluctant surrender. And the writer, Cheryl Strayed has this beautiful line where she says, acceptance is a small, quiet room. And that landed for me so powerfully when I was staring at the ceiling tiles in my bedroom, counting, you know, like a prisoner counting the days off my calendar of my non-doing and my being in what Arthur Brooks calls the agony of irrelevance. Would you repeat the Cheryl Stroud quote? Acceptance is a small, quiet room. Oh, because I felt it the first time you said it, and I just wanted to kind of highlight that. I don't know how to win at this. That was the frustration. Like, it's this tension between I know how to figure things out. I'm the one who gets things done. And I've met my match. Mm. It's like you're on your knees in the howl. I don't know how to fix this or it's going to take way longer and it's not going to go the way I wanted. So you kind of have this wobbly on the inside, like I'm not getting my way and I want my way and I can't figure out how to do this. So I'm doing the kale smoothies. I'm doing the meditations. I'm doing all the things like an A plus student thinking I can get there quicker. And it takes the time it takes. So eventually acceptance is a small, quiet room. I just went into this place of like, okay, I got no fight left in me. This is it. I'm a wash up now. And there's so much grief under that. And what I realized is that's not the end, right? What I feel like I'm in now is the next two phases, phases four and five, is bouncing between experimenting, which is what I call phase four, which is realizing that in that surrender, in that reluctant surrender, there's a kind of ego death that happens. That am I still worthy? I heard several in your story already. So So there's this letting go of and fear crowding and having to sit with fear and letting go of all those masks. I can't be put together. I, I don't always have all the answers. I can't run at this pace. I can't say yes. I can't be perfect. And I'm air quoting now. So all of those things, like it's a series of gut punches to the ego. And then it's kind of like, okay, well, this is who I am now. And then these little green shoots start to come up of like, I had these comments like, oh, what if we don't want the old you back? That's what my husband said. I said, what? It didn't even occur to me that what was coming on the back end of me feeling like I'm emerging like a phoenix from the ashes. It was not a phoenix. It was just like, (laughs) I don't know what you want to call that. It was like this pathetic little finger poking out of the ashes. Who am I now? A little test balloon. It did not feel powerful or put together. It felt deflated. I felt weak. I felt pathetic. I felt filled with self-doubt. And eventually those feelings burn off. And then there's just a nothingness. And that felt so discombobulating for somebody who ate goals for breakfast, who always had direction. And then I had a coach tell me, is it nothingness or is it spaciousness? Mm. Mm. And that was a beginning. So being in this 
mindset mush of letting go of I do, therefore I am. Letting go of being so motivated by status because that was the only game in town for me up till then. And actually getting to know this person who was underneath all the shoulds. So that was interesting. That was the experimenting phase. And the phase after that, that I sometimes toggle into is the fifth phase, what I call wholeness of actually realizing that I actually quite like who I am, who I really am, not all the masks and the lacquer and all the who I think I'm supposed to be so that other people will like me and bestow power on me. I always used to think that I had to do all that hustling so that other people would give me power and pats on the head. Whereas like I am now more and more in ownership that the power is is me and not in what I do. That just happens to be a, a nice plus. But there's this toggling. You remember the moment when you realized that you liked yourself? It was a fleeting one. I mean, there were a couple of them. One of them was actually coming out of the shower and drying myself off. And in the steamy bathroom, like looking at my body in the mirror. And instead of immediately being critical of, take your pick of anything you can be critical about, I was just like, wow, body, you and I have been through some stuff. (laughs) And it felt so nice to actually give that verbal high five to my body that had been struggling through so many things that I had imposed on it. And then to start receiving feedback, like you're different somehow. Mm -hmm. And to actually have people say to me that your softness is so powerful. It just felt like a brain bending thing for me that it, it softness was powerful. So that was one moment. I remember that moment and sitting with with clients and actually leading from softness. It doesn't mean that all those other tools in my kit were gone, but I went from being a hammer. You know, when you're a hammer, everything has to be a nail. I went from being more to a Swiss army knife. Like there was all sorts of different gizmos and gadgets in me now that were were there and that felt accessible. So it felt like more complexity in a good way, mostly in a good way, came to the surface. So I remember that moment when I became friends with my body. That was one that came to mind. The reason I ask is because I remember the moment I gave myself a break and felt love for myself, right? I remember the exact moment where I was, what I was reading, what happened, right? Because it was a lifetime of not knowing that thought and not knowing that feeling, right? There was the before that moment in the shower and then after that moment in the shower, right? It doesn't stay, but now it's a new, it's a new thing that you never had before. The, the name of this podcast is turning high achievers into leaders, right? Into effective leaders, because this, the, you know, we, get, we think we're getting our self-esteem. We think we're getting our pats on the back. We think we're getting this worth from accomplishing, from doing, from other people seeing who we are and what we can do. And that moment that you realize that that's not who you are, that that's what you've been, you you said at the beginning, all the energy that went to image maintenance, right? All that energy. I remember I was sitting, I was sitting on a cushion reading 
Spirituality is the Damnedest Thing by Jed McKenna. He explained that just what you explained. And I realized I had spent my entire life creating Mark, just creating Mark and creating what people saw of Mark and what people thought of Mark. And all of my energy went to that and wasn't going to other things. And that's when it all fell away from, for me, just like I walked around in the days for days. So you learned to be kind to yourself. You learned to slow down. You started to learn that you aren't your achievements, right? And you started to grow there. And then after the podcast, I saw you, you shift and you created the enough podcast and you started talking about, because you know, I wanted to ask the question at the beginning, like what caused the drivenness, right? And I think what you found was underneath that was not feeling enough. Is that true? Not feeling enough is a coping mechanism. It's a story that I created as a young person to protect myself. Because, you know, if we geek out for a moment, the brain hates cognitive dissonance. So if you're being told as a young person by a caregiver that you're not enough, you're not up to scratch because you're not getting full marks in school, you're not winning the races, you're not doing all the things, you're not scoring first in the IQ test, that you're not enough. So I felt like I, in I mean, it's not conscious, but I internalized that belief and then started gathering data points from a very young age that that must be the case. So the hustle, the over-torquing into achieving became a way to try to respond to that. And it was just, it was a way of being in the world that also had a lot of positives. Like when I think about what I love about being an overachiever, this is mm-hmm. a question I use with my coaching clients all the time. The thing that is causing you a challenge is when someone's a smoker, what do you love about being a smoker instead of making it wrong? Mm-hmm. So there was plenty that was right about being an overachiever because it got me pats on the head. It got me out of that home situation that I was trying desperately to get out of. It got me to Cambridge. It got me into investment banking. It got me into being a top executive coach. Like There is a lot of good in the overachiever and it's not bad or wrong until you realize, is it causing me suffering? So it's a coping mechanism that I think has played out the majority of the good stuff and I can keep squeezing it, but the juice is out of it. So it's really, a, it's really been time in this season of my life to gear shift into something that serves me more powerfully now. So you've been talking about this now for, for a few years about this enoughness. And it, at first I thought it was a small topic, like a, this was just a little piece of the puzzle and you've been exploring it. What, what have you learned about that talking? Cause you have you talk about this on your podcast with some of the most intelligent, brilliant people I, I've, I've known. What have you learned about the effects of not feeling enough and then the road to feeling enoughness? One of the things that I've learned recently is that we can become addicted to some of our neurochemicals. And I had Dr. Anna Lemke, a Stanford professor of psychiatry, and she's a world expert on dopamine. And we had a really powerful conversation about how as achievers, when we achieve something, the bar raises to the next level. So if we achieve the same thing again next week or next month, it feels meh. Mm. So we then need to achieve something bigger, brighter, and shinier, or there needs to be some kind of 
unexpected surprise attached to it for us to get the same dopamine hit. So the bar is constantly rising and it it can feel like when you achieve the next promotion, the next bonus, you buy the next shiny gadget, you go on the next fancy holiday, it feels good for a moment, but then you want the next thing. So there's this perpetual craving and this constant sense of this hollowness of it's never feels it never really feels like it's fulfilling or really as nourishing as you hope it will be. And there's enough of a pattern of that. It's kind of like a hall of mirrors. You know it, but you can't stop. And what what's really become interesting to me recently is that there's also a, a neurochemical aspect to this. This I've also looked at from a spiritual perspective. I went to hear Gelong Tubten, a monk, speaking on this recently. He's written a book called The Hard Book for Hand, The Handbook for Hard Times. And I asked him a question in this session. He's sitting there, his vision of calm and his burgundy robes, and he even had burgundy Nikes to match. I'm like, he is on point, just like you are today with your shirt and your background. And he was talking about the habitualization of wanting. Mm-hmm. And that struck me because for so many overachievers, we've got the neurochemicals that keep us on this gerbil wheel of get the next thing. For sure, it's going to be the next thing. No, it's the next thing. It's the next thing. But the thing that he said added that spiritual element to it because it's not about the achievement. And that was new to me. It's not actually about the achievement. It's first of all, scientifically, it's about the the constant reset of dopamine levels, but also spiritually, it's not about the achievement or the shiny thing. It's about the habitualization of wanting. Mm. And that shifted, like that messed with my thinking because I thought, no wonder it's unfulfilling because it's never about the thing. It's about I'm, I'm habitualized to want. So when I get it, the want comes back regardless of what the achievement is. So I think there's so many different alleys to wander into this concept of enoughness. And really it's about that we will never feel enough if we're looking at the one-legged stool of achievement, because it can't give us all of the things that could possibly represent our wholeness. When when you called achievement a one-legged stool, it fritzed my brain a little bit. And I had I had to go away and rethink that. So what you're saying is achievement is a one-legged stool. You cannot rest, you cannot balance on achievement. It's futile. And it may be Captain Obvious to everybody who's listening. For me, that just blew my mind that, right, for so long, we thought if we just achieve, that is a chair we can trust. And it's not. Correct. Whereas there's so much research that shows that we are wired for status. We're always looking, where do we fit in vis-a-vis the next person? How do I get ahead? How do I avoid falling behind? So I think being in that hall of mirrors is always this moving towards something, but equally moving away from something simultaneously, which is why it's so exhausting. So we can't stop or slow down. Hence, you fall into the agony of irrelevance because I do, therefore I am, but you never actually get there because there's no there there. So it's the realization that 
achievement isn't the portal, at least not on its own. And it's starting to think about what other aspects of my life could I be thinking about? Could I be exploring? Like purpose, meaning, what what impact do I want to have? What is the what do I want to do here while I'm on my life? What connections am I creating? So it's those other things as well of thinking, where can I start to invest some of the 100%, 110% that I had put into achieving, realizing that it always feels hollow, realizing that it's an exercise in futility and exhaustion, and starting to reallocate some of those resources as an experiment. That's what I mean by this fourth phase of experimentation. Where do I truly get joy? Because if I know if I achieve that thing or buy that thing, I'll feel good for four minutes and then I'll want the next thing. Like there's a there's so many data points of that. Whereas if I have this conversation with you, this like really warms me. I feel good on the inside and it will be something that I'll look back on. And when I listen to it, there will be longer term good feels. So it's there's also the other, another point that I've learned is there's this terror for so many overachievers of being ordinary. Right. Let's keep going so we outrun mediocrity and ordinariness as if, even though that's almost impossible to define. Um, one of the guests on my podcast was talking about a client. He was a psychiatrist, what he was, was working with. And this woman said she would rather be special than be happy. Mm. Ooh. So there's something about this. If I push myself this hard, somewhere along the line, I don't know where, but in the hall of mirrors, somewhere I will be bestowed with, hap- with specialness. And actually you realize your gig is up at some stage. Uh, I hope people will realize that. And then where is the juice for me now? So it's the, that's what I mean about the experimentation and the realization that there's joy and there's, there's so much goodness outside of achievement. Achievement alone isn't bad or wrong, but is it causing me suffering? Oh, so good. All right. So in the original interview that I had with you, I asked you, if you met a 33-year-old driven woman, right? Today's Mandy met her and went back. You said that you would hug her longer than was comfortable for her. You would feel her stiffen, but she wouldn't be ready to listen to you. Mm-hmm. And then I said, how about a 43-year-old woman? And you said, I would do exactly the same thing, although this time I might feel her tremble and actually let me in a little bit. Where on the bell curve of overachieving and success are people receptive to your message? I find that it's usually when their body is speaking to them, when they're in perpetual overwhelm, maybe their back is hurting so badly that they can't get out of bed, when they're feeling stressed, maybe even a little bit paranoid, something that's probably scared them a little bit. And they've come back from the brink. Mm. And I heard a question yesterday that bent my brain and I I wrote it down on a sticky note. I thought, oh, I need to use this question in Mark's interview if the opportunity comes up. But what is this problem designed to solve? Oh, what is this problem designed to solve? So this problem of overwhelm, this problem of your body sending up red flares, what is this problem designed to solve? 
Because just like I was pushing deck chairs around the Titanic, there comes a time and there will be, I'm speaking in generalizations now, but there comes a time where you have to actually do something structural. It's not just farting around the edges and drinking a green juice and hoping, Mm-mm. hoping for the best. So it's usually at that stage where they're feeling that they just can't keep up the facade anymore, but they don't know who to reach out to because it feels utterly terrifying. And this problem is generally designed to solve a much bigger infrastructure problem in their lives, the things that they don't want to think about, because if you look it in the eye, then you probably have to do something about it. Right. And I bet, so I bet you your your Instagram feed is probably like such a secret little treasure for these people, because I find I find it, I don't even consider myself an overachiever or a high achiever. Other people do <laughs> consider me that. I don't. And our mutual coach and friend, Rich Litvin, would say an overachiever or high achiever would think that, <laughs> <laughs> right? So I want to end the interview because I'm completely taken with one of your Instagram posts. So we're going to end with this conversation. And by the way, go to Dr. Mandy Leto. She's Mandy Leto, L-E-H-T-O on Instagram. And it's a masterclass in everything that we're talking about. And just like, it'll just set your day off right. But this post that she did, five things I learned in 15 years of coaching. When you're coaching for that long, when you've coached that many people, when you've done your own work, and I've been in rooms where Mandy has done her own work, where I've done my own work. And again, our mutual friend, Rich would say, you can only take your clients as deep as you're willing to go. And we've both been there, right? A couple of the things that you, you, you said was, even the most, most confident and accomplished people struggle with not enoughness. So we just, we just, that's was the topic of what we were talking about now. This one I love. Self-compassion is how we transform self-judgment into self-acceptance. Tell me about that. How did, how did you learn that or what do you have around that? One of the great tools, well, one, actually one of the great ongoing pieces of work that I'm in right now is building emotional capacity. Building emotional capacity to doubt my own thinking, mm-hmm. building emotional capacity to be with my stories of my supposed inadequacies, flaws, all the reasons why it's never going to work out for me. In the work, I realized that one of my internal circuit breakers for getting too successful or too visible was I should always feel bad about myself. So if I grew out of one thing, then something else would mushroom into that place. So if if I felt a better relationship with my body, then I should feel bad about some other thing. It was totally unconscious. And it's such an elaborate, incredibly sophisticated system. Right. And in the work of self-compassion, which I learned through going to multiple meditation courses, having some incredible people on my podcast, I'm a nerd, so I'm constantly reading books and learning. And I went into self-compassion thinking it was icky, gross, wimpy, and weak. And it just felt this wasn't for me. And I had to be hardcore. Self-compassion, that's not for me. (laughs) I don't need self-compassion. But when I realized that I could just be curious about it and think, you know what? There are actually other people who have felt this feeling. And if I name this feeling, it feels like fear. And what do I need to do about this feeling of fear in this moment? Like there was a logic to those three steps, those self-compassion steps that I learned. 
And I thought, okay, I can do that because it felt like a to-do list, Mark. That's why mm-hmm. I could do it because name the feeling, other people have felt this feeling and what can I do to make it a little bit better? It's like that I could do. It didn't feel like so airy fairy and wind chimes and whale sounds and Birkenstocks and all the things that I was so resistant to, like anything off the beaten track that wasn't logical. So I think as I got into the work of self-compassion, it didn't mean that I had to be like hugging myself and singing Kumbaya and thinking I was like the greatest thing, but I, I could be neutral with myself. I could give myself compassion. I could get, I could get to neutral. <laughs> <laughs> I could get to neutral. I didn't need to be in self-loathing because I felt like that was the only way I knew how to motivate myself. If I liked myself, how would I get anything done? Exactly. And if you don't hate yourself first, how are you going to deal with it when other people criticize you? Of course. You see, it's so elaborate, this whole weed system underneath the surface. So I think self-compassion made me realize like I could get to neutral. I could use those three steps and it didn't have to be, it didn't have to feel gross and over the top and Hallmark Cardi or Fridge Magnety or whatever else. Like it could just be like, yeah, you're okay. Mm. But you know what that again, a lifetime of not being okay, okay feels so good. Yeah. Right? Like I'm not terrible feels so good. Exactly, exactly. And then it takes a little time. So I think this process, I couldn't rush this process. And now I quite like my own company. I I, I think I'm kind of a big deal now. But I say this with with great humility, also knowing that. I slide right to the edge of burnout repeatedly, unless I'm paying real vigilant attention. I still don't have it figured out. Right. Not a hundred percent of the time. You ended the last podcast with the same thing. I still haven't figured it out. Right? It's <laughs> and if you interview later. me in 10 years, I'll say the same thing. And I think that's about keeping it real. So here's a, here's the third one. We're, to, we're talking about the five things you've learned in 15 years of coaching. You can't immunize yourself against criticism and self-judgment. You can grow in your emotional capacity to be less triggered by it. How many people have come up to us? And when I talk about something like that, they're like, no, if you come to my program, you will never feel <laughs> that again. You will never have that thought again. Self-judgment will go out. And I'm like, I've been to your program. I still have it. In fact, I see you have it. <laughs> so I love, I love that one. Like you can all, you're going to be human, right? Like why fight with your humanity? Exactly. It's part of what makes us so tender in our underbelly. And this is what makes us relatable. I'm not a guru on a mountainside sitting there smugly with a 10 step plan. I'm a human being who's following a North star towards wholeness. And I'm successful some of the time and I'm really unsuccessful the rest of the time. And I think being able to make a peace with that, that that's absolutely okay. That there will be times that are extraordinary and also times that are really ordinary. Mm. And that's okay. There's nothing to be afraid of there. Yeah, that ordinary thing actually sticks with me. Overachieving is different, but ordinary, I, I, don't, I don't like that one. So number four is pausing to self-regulate when you feel triggered is a powerful practice, which I think it's I think the ability to do that is a superpower. It can feel impossible at the beginning, but it gets easier. So how do you do that? I first of all, I allow myself to pause. I've been interviewed or been on stage and like been triggered and like that whole physic when I get triggered physiologically, my breath goes away, I sweat, that kind of thing. And for me to allow myself to be okay 
with not being okay until I get to be okay is, has been a game changer. And I teach people, if you're in a meeting and someone triggers you, it's okay to be silent and breathe for a moment. It's okay to say, huh, that caught me off guard. Let me gather my thoughts. Never would have occurred to me before, right? So that's mine. How about yours? It's very similar. I think I what I try to do is get out of my head and into my body. I've had some stuff. I've been doing some emotional labor more so than usual in the past few months. And I found that simple is good, feeling my feet on the floor, just realizing that I am in a body in this moment in time and being able to perforate my thoughts. So I notice the story come up immediately like, oh, that sucks. That person shouldn't have said, who do you think you are? The story comes up very quickly. And if I can perforate that story and get underneath it into the feeling that is beneath the story, it's usually fear or sadness or grief. And if I can just feel the bottoms of my feet on the floor and be in the feeling, Mm. it usually disappears or shifts in some way. So it's getting getting under the skin of the story to what what's underneath there. And I'm a student of that. Yeah. So what you're saying is pausing to self-regulate and being okay while you're being triggered is like, that's a superpower. I walked out on stage to do a keynote uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I got on stage in the morning to feel it out and feel the venue and all that stuff. And then I walk out on stage and my, my walk-on music is playing way too long. And it's still going when I'm supposed to be talking and I'm supposed to ask a question. I start with a question to the audience. Also, there's a smoke machine. So the smoke is everywhere and they have the lights on me. So I look out to ask my question. My, my walk-up music is still going. I can't see a person in the audience, not a person. And I'm a deer in the headlights. Like, I'm just like, what do I do? Do I dance while the music's still going? Do I talk over the music? I can't see anybody. When I ask my question, I can't see if anybody raised their hand. And the thing I've learned to be is okay being a deer in the headlights. Like I'm not going to panic that I'm a deer in the headlights to be even more of a deer in the headlights. So I just kept breathing and talking and eventually dropped back in. But it was so interesting. I was like, there's no place to hide here. Like I am completely thrown in front of an audience, right? And there's like, my body's going to do what it's going to do. So it was really funny. This last one really kind of made me, and this is wonderful to end on. The most challenging thing you may ever do is to accept parts of your yourself that you feel are unacceptable and unlovable. How do you do that? Because I can, I can, I can go to neutral. Like, how do you accept things that are just unacceptable? Well, I wish I could tell you that I had a ten-step plan because I would have written the New York Times best-selling book, and I would be living in the Bahamas, drinking a something tropical with a little umbrella in it having bottled that formula. I think it's step by step. And sometimes it's breath by breath. I think it's being able to, I watched a video on YouTube with the actor, Michael Caine. And he said something really profound in this video called use the difficulty, use the difficulty. He was talking about being a young actor and he was supposed to burst through this door. And earlier in the scene, there had been a kerfuffle in this room and a chair had fallen against the door. So when he's supposed to do his scene and barge into the room, he can't get in. 
And being a young actor at the time, he went bunny in the headlights, like you on the stage. And then he learned over time with some training to use the difficulty. So that's something really powerful as well to how do we use these difficulties? What is this problem of not being able to be myself? What is this problem designed to solve? Mm. How do we use the difficulty? So if I can't like myself, well, I can get to neutral. Great. You might... You might plinky plonk along at neutral for six months or six years, and that's okay. That's better than being in self-loathing. And then one day something shifts. I think it's it's not expecting miracles that this is going to go away overnight. And it's sort of disbelieving our thinking about these things. And another thing that I do is not not just use the difficulty, but like I try to imagine that some of those parts that feel so unlovable, I imagine myself as a little seven-year-old with my little kids on and my pigeon toes in and my hands folded on my lap and looking down and trying so hard to please. How can I say those vitriolic things to that little me? She was doing the best that she knew how at the time. And so many of those coping mechanisms come from when we were little and we had no agency. We didn't know better. So it's being able to breath by breath, use the difficulty look at that little kid inside of you, right? They're like, there is a Russian doll of all the ages of us inside of us. Mm. And can we send some pink heart energy to that and just say, hey, you're all right. You're okay. It's experiments. The reason I love talking to you about this is because I don't know that I've met anybody who was <laughs> as hard a driver as you, who was caught in the hall of mirrors of achievement, even when the achievement didn't work and then trying to fix it, right? You're such a credible voice to talk about these squishy kind of things because you've been there, done that, beat the hell out of it, right? Try to find any other way other than this to deal with it. And then you imperfectly have grown and done it. And now your message is so much clearer. So it's really clear. It's you really clicked into who you are, what you bring to the world. And it's such a healing message that I just feel so good having these conversations with you where other people like they don't have the credibility because the people that listen to this podcast are who we were, right? And trying to figure it out. So I would there would be an eye roll. So I really appreciate the work that you've done publicly. Like publicly for years with this and the the hearts that you've healed in the tens of thousands, I'm sure, because of, you've been so brave to do this in front of everybody. Thank you, Mark. I received that. Yeah. And, and the beauty and elegance in which you have my heart. So is there anything you'd like to part with before I ask you how to get in touch with you? One of the most healing shifts that I'm still exploring is the shift away from me to we. Mm -hmm. That has worked for me 100% of the time. When I'm feeling not enough, when I'm doubting myself, when I'm feeling like a loser, when I'm thinking, what's the point of any of this? Nobody cares. Who do I think I am? If I can notice myself and get in that story and feel the grief and the sadness and the uncertainty lurking underneath that story, and then add an additional step is to reach out to people in your life 
kind of link arms with them and be on a journey together. There's something about also moving out of this lone wolf about this, not only being in habitualized wanting, but also in being in habitualized proving energy, also in being in habitualized, I'll show you energy, also being in perpetual fear energy. So one of the antidotes to that is being in community with with people who see and love you for who you are, not what you do. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you for that. So I talked about your Instagram. If people want to get more of you, where can they find you? Well, Instagram is more of the real raw, messy, personal stuff. I do slightly more buttoned up stuff on Instagram where I've, or on LinkedIn rather, where I've distilled it into more coachy wisdom. And I think if you like this conversation and you want to cannonball into more of this, including episode 19 with you, Mr. Mark Silverman, I would really recommend going on to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and searching up enough the podcast. Great. You don't have to search it up because we're going to put it in the show notes and you can just click on it. Manny, thank you for, for again, for another great conversation and for your friendship and for being a light in the world. Thank you, Mark. To everybody else, I appreciate your time and attention and your open-mindedness and open-heartedness. I love you a ton. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for joining today's conversation. If you got value, please share the episode, give us a thumbs up, write us a review. And if there's a topic you'd like us to cover or a question that you have, send them my way. Look forward to connecting on the next episode of the Rising Leader Podcast.